You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I've got a great guest. I have Audrey from Urban Amphibia, and she's going to talk about some of her experiences doing vivarium builds and uh, her her education, which is in uh, fisheries and wildlife sciences, and uh, starting off a, a business of her own and just her experiences in the hobby. So uh, we're going to get into that, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, first off, though, I want to thank everyone who left the nice uh, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. A great way to support the show and spread the messages by leaving a nice five-star review. Uh, there was someone who left a five-star review. I, I couldn't quite catch the person's name, so if you're out there listening, I appreciate that. And I uh, also want to remind everyone, if you're interested in supporting the show on Patreon, that's a great way to do it. $5 tier gets you a shout-out on an upcoming episode. So if that's something you want to get in, check on that as well. And uh, also, just keep in mind, uh, I have a couple of compilations, uh, excuse me, not compilations, I should say, uh, collaborations that are be coming up in the near future. I really haven't quite dropped the bomb on it yet, but uh, keep an eye out. I've got some interesting stuff coming up in the works with a couple of the podcasters, so it's going to be interesting. But um, I want to welcome Audrey, and I also want to thank her for doing this last minute. We uh, kind of had to shuffle a couple of things around here in my house. I had uh, another guest reschedule. And Audrey was great about just uh, coming in at the last minute. So uh, we're just going to get right into it. So Audrey, uh, welcome. Thank you for being on the show. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. And it's an honor to be here. I was uh, definitely, you know, flattered to be asked to be on here. I know you've uh, had some really great guests on here and people that I've looked up to over the years and that have inspired me to, to get into dart frog keeping. So I'm very glad to be a part of this. That's that's kind of you to say. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. But um, I'm I'm honored to have you. So uh, why don't we get started? Why don't why don't we? I always ask everyone this question. Let's let's start at the beginning. What were some of your first experiences with animals like, and what led you to where you are today? <laughs> uh, you know, my experiences were pretty unique. Um, definitely not trying to start off on a depressing note or anything. Um, but I am a spinal and lung patient. Um, I have a connective tissue disorder that has led me to have um, several surgeries. Uh, I had a lot of health issues as a kid, um, even throughout college. And, you know, it sounds kind of dorky, but I always connected with animals more than people. Um, you know, I've kind of talked about it with you. I was more of a lurker, like observer and definitely a bit more on the shy side. Um, so making friends was not super easy for me. And I grew up in the country, you know, um, South Central Texas, and my parents have a little bit of property. And they had a stock tank and, you know, they raised poultry and whatnot. And so I just always found great joy in being outside, being in nature, um, you know, doing a little bit of herping and bird watching from the time I was a wee little one. <laughs> um, you know, I used to have fish tanks and stuff as a kid and it's a pretty terrible story. Um, but kind of funny at the same time, you know, we had a stock tank and one of my brothers loved to just torment me and play pranks on me. And he caught a bullfrog out there and stuck it in my fish tank. And needless to say, the, the bullfrog was kind of the only thing left. <laughs> um, so I, I've always just kind of found joy in, in finding animals and watching them and their natural habitat, uh, keeping them. And so 
I always knew I wanted to work with them as well. And I was very fortunate and got started working in a vet clinic um, from the time I was 15 years old. And, you know, it was a mixed animal practice. So we pretty much saw anything that walked through the door. And from that time, I knew like there was nothing else I was ever going to be happy doing. And so I have a pretty diverse background. Um, I've pretty much exclusively worked with animals professionally in both the vet field, um, you know, research. I even had a chance to um, work with U.S. Fish and Wildlife for a little bit, and that was really cool. Um, and, you know, I've I've worked in some other like pet settings, uh, professional keeper, and actually worked as a professional bird trainer for two years as well. So <laughs> a pretty diverse animal experience. You ended up doing your education in wildlife and fishery science. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I actually originally thought about going to vet school, um, which is what led me to go into Texas A&M University. And one semester in, I just realized, you know, that was not what I wanted to do. You know, kind of going back to I've always been an outdoorsy person. And even in vet clinics, you know, I was never happy just like chilling in the office or anything, um, staying under fluorescent lighting all day, that kind of thing. I I knew I was going to get burned out on that if I just had to do that the rest of my life. Um, not to mention the the student loan debt from vet school. That's no joke. Um, and so I contemplated becoming a game warden. And I had several friends at A&M that were already in the wildlife and fishery science um, degree program. And they were telling me all about their coursework and stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, I need to go talk to this academic advisor and get transferred over right now. And so literally after my very first semester, um, I switched from biomedical science to wildlife and fishery science, and I never looked back. Um, You know, there's several different excellent wildlife programs in the country. Um, A&M is one of the the best ones, Colorado State, um, Florida. So there's definitely some good options out there. But honestly, my time at A&M and the people I met, the the professors I had, and just the overall education definitely led me to where I'm at now. Um, I'd be lying if I said there weren't times, you know, after college, being a broke college student working, you know, less than desirable jobs that had me thinking, man, what the heck did I go to college for? But um, you know, definitely now, especially since I've opened Urban Amphibia and started doing this, I I'm very proud of that. And, you know, I have a huge, huge um, you know, place in my heart for AM and and their wildlife program there. Um, you know, a cool thing there is they have the what's called the biodiversity teaching and research collection. And it's actually one of the largest wildlife collections in the country um, that was started in the 1930s. And they have over a million specimens there that in our wildlife program, we actually got to research and they have like a genetic bank there. So they do genetic studies. Um, You know, we (laughs) got tested up and down that entire building, everything from taxonomy and 
you know, phylogenetic history, all the way up to identification by jawbones and crazy things like that. Um, so I think that definitely helped give me, um, you know, an edge in in this business. You know, it's just that educational background is, you know, you definitely don't have to have a degree to be great at something. Um, but it does speak a little bit more, you know, if somebody's willing to dedicate that much of their life, their their time and financials to to going to school and, you know, going in guns blazing after it. And that's definitely what I did. And uh, I haven't looked back. <laughs> that's a pretty full immersion. It seems like you you really got a, a very broad spectrum of of. I mean, I mean, veterinary medicine, fish and, you know, fish and wildlife. I feel like, how do I put this? I mean, like me personally, the more I became interested in the natural history of the animals that I kept, mm-hmm. the more I, I, I appreciated them. I, I can, I understand what you're saying. It seems like there's been a lessening of the gap between people who work with animals scientifically and people who keep animals as, as a hobby. And at least what I've noticed is there's been a lot more people who do who do both, people who are hobbyists right. but also have a, a very substantial involvement in, in either research or conservation or what have you. If you wanted yeah, to, absolutely. if you wanted to give someone advice about how to reach the the state that that you got to in terms of like your educational path and just the life choices that led you to have such a knowledge base. Like, what advice would you give to someone who was who was younger who might be looking to go on that path? Sure. The first thing I would say is definitely don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Um, you know, you always hear about networking, and it's not what you know; it's who you know. And unfortunately, that that's always going to ring true to a certain extent. Um, so, networking does play a huge factor in it. But y'all, especially, you know, people when I was working in zookeeping and training, I would get questions all the time. Like, how the heck did you get this job? This amazing. That's my dream job. Y'all, anytime you're working with animals, it is such a competitive market. Um, You know, I have a lot of experience. I know a lot of people, but there's always somebody that's going to have more experience and know more people than you. So if you're going to focus on something, you know, put your all into it. Don't do anything halfways. And the one thing, you know, I even tell people I wish I did more of in college is join more like student organizations or even if you don't go to college. Um, you know, for instance, I volunteered at the Houston Zoo for a while, and that was uh, when I was still working on my degree. And if you're dead set on, you know, working with animals, you just have to understand that, A, you're probably not going to get rich doing it. So so don't go into it with that mindset. Um, it's definitely a labor of love and passion. And like I said, because of that, you know, I've always heard, oh, you know, working with animals, that must be the dream. And so there's a ton of people that are willing to do it. And you have to be willing to you know, put the work in and do the grunt work. Um, you know, growing up, I come from a military family. I'm actually the first person in my family to go to college. And my dad was very hesitant about that. Um, (laughs) 
And so he always told me, he's like, I don't want you being one of those highfalutin educated people that thinks you're too good to, you know, push a broom or anything. Never forget where you came from and don't ever think you're too good to do any dirty work. Y'all, I have literally with my degree and as a business owner, you know, scrubbed feces off of glass tanks and all that kind of stuff. So you're never too good to do anything. Um I've worked with board certified exotic veterinarians that'll go in and get their hands dirty too with us um, when the time calls for it. But the other big thing I would give that's a little bit more specific to like a wildlife degree is to really narrow down your focus. Um, I know when I started, I was just so excited with the prospect of taking all these different elective courses they had to offer. And I wanted to take all of them. Um, they had mammalogy, ichthyology, herpetology, ornithology, like everything under the sun. And I was like, yes, I want to take all of them. Well, you know, any good academic advisor is going to tell you that's not really in your best interest. And so choose, you know, a couple of things that you really want to focus on and just, you know, put all of your energy into being the best at it, um, learning everything you can about it. And so to put it into perspective, my degree is in wildlife and fishery science, but there's several different um, focuses that you can choose for that major. And my particular one is wildlife ecology and conservation. They also have things like vertebrate zoology, fisheries, aquaculture, uh, wildlife and rangeland management. Like there's several different avenues you can go into. Um, but I chose wildlife ecology and conservation because I've always been a naturalist at heart. Um, you know, I grew up traveling. My parents were part-time RVers. I've gone to, you know, all different national parks and stuff across the country. And conservation has always been incredibly important to me. Um, that's kind of the foundation of everything that I do and and that I work so hard to educate the public on. Um so, you know, that helped prepare me for that education, um, you know, the zoological work, all of that stuff. Um, but for instance, my husband, he's a fisheries biologist. And so his major, he's also wildlife and fisheries science, but his focus was um, fisheries and aquaculture management. And so we're kind of the the dynamic duo over here. <laughs> it's interesting how people sort of end up in a certain career path like you seem to be very very driven to go towards a certain goal and i've i've had all different types of people on the show and i've had a lot of people who just sort of fell into it where they might have started a research project with with a particular species of frog or something like that and then that ended up just being the the, the focus of their career so uh i mean you really kind of focused in on on what you wanted as well right yeah absolutely um you know, funny story, I always get asked why frogs, you know, I've worked with everything from microscopic invertebrates to giraffes. Um, I have a very, very diverse background. Um, you know, my favorite animals have always been birds and amphibians. I don't know why they just happen. I think a lot of that was definitely influenced in college as well. Um, cause my main biodiversity focuses were ornithology and herpetology. And I've always found them just anatomically fascinating. Their evolutionary history was fascinating to me. 
and just how uniquely adapted both birds and amphibians are. Um, and I will admit birds were my first love. You know, I have five parrots. I worked in avian medicine for a long time. I worked as a professional bird trainer and keeper. And unfortunately I have, um, a lung disease that started prohibiting me from working with birds. And I was like, well, crap, what am I going to do? And I had already kept frogs at the time, but that was just more as a hobby. And, you know, that was always my other favorite animal to work with. And I always loved educating people on them. And so that just automatically took precedence for me. I was like, you know what? I have some really cool frogs here. People always love, you know, meeting them and learning about them. So this is what my focus is going to be now. And that is ultimately what led to urban amphibia <laughs> um, is just, you know, I've always had frogs. I've been keeping frogs ever since I was, you know, a wee little kid, probably over 20, 20 plus years now. Um and, you know, I started off with just American green tree frogs, things like that. Um, and then I remember the first time I ever saw dart frogs at the San Antonio Zoo as a kid. And, you know, I think I had that same initial reaction. All of us had the first time we saw dart frogs. It's like, oh, my God, what are these amazing creatures? <laughs> and then, you know, whenever I found out you could actually keep them, I saw somebody selling them at, um, you know, a reptile expo down here. And that was it for me. I was sold. Um, you know, I saw that they were available. I did all the research and the very first, uh, dart frogs I ever got were the Dendrobates tinctorius green cipollini. And I still have them, you know, several years later. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how the dart frog world, it, it just sort of sucks you in. Like, I mean, I, I'd kept all different sorts of species over the years, but for some reason I went down this rabbit hole with dart frogs and yep. <laughs> it's like just, most of us do. yeah, it's just, it's such a unique community because like you had said earlier, before we started, uh, before we started recording, it's not a, a, the huge community that say ball pythons or carpet pythons or leopard geckos or, or right. beer dragons. It's a much smaller, more. I guess you call it like intimate venue. <laughs> like what yes. is that when you have a small concert, they call an intimate venue. Yep. Most definitely. Yeah. Was there anyone who influenced you when you were starting to begin in the hobby or like any particular entity or anything like that, that kind of inspired you to keep dart frogs a certain way or, or focus on them as a hobby? Um, you know, like I said, I, I guess I've always had an affinity for like beautiful, brightly colored animals. I mean, parrots, like I said, they were my first love. Dart frogs were just kind of, you know, natural after that or frogs in general, honestly. I mean, my first, like, I guess more quote unquote advanced species I kept were actually red eye tree frogs and I've had them for, you know, 15 years now. Um, some of my oldest ones. And, uh, the dart frogs just came and like you said, they, they're so just, it's easy to become enamored with them. And I do a bunch of trade shows and, you know, I've been with some friends and they always laugh every time I get that first timer and they just get that look in their eye when, you know, they're a dart frog person and they've been talking about getting them and researching them. 
I always tell them, I'm like, yep, you'll be back. You know, you never have just one species. You're always going to be back for more. <laughs> um, but as far as like inspiration for, for keeping or how I keep or my mentality, it might sound a little cliche, but, uh, you know, if you could always, or, you know, people always ask if you can meet one person, who would it be? And mine has always been David Attenborough. Um, you know, I'm a huge, huge David Attenborough fan girl. I grew up watching all of his documentaries and I mean, just the naturalist and conservationist in me, I always had an affinity for him. And, um, so he was really the one that really inspired me to have my mindset that I do towards keeping and really respecting the animals. Um, and, you know, learning from them as best as we can. And, you know, especially with reptiles and amphibians, they're often some of the most hated animals or the most feared animals. And it's a little disheartening to see, you know, how many people I see at the trade shows that are like grossed out by frogs and stuff. And I'm just like, no, they're fabulous creatures. <laughs> um, so that that's really been my biggest motivation is to help educate, you know, as well. Um, even if they're not your thing, if you never intend on keeping dart frogs or any kind of frog period, you know, they serve such important ecological, um, or they're such important ecological indicators. And I think people, you know, kind of take that for granted and how fascinating they are and, you know, what we can learn from these guys, amphibians in general. Yeah, there's so much about them that's just so intriguing. And like, I mean, for me personally, I find that you get this, uh, almost like everyone's just automatically predisposed that like when you bring up frogs in general, the first thing is, oh, frogs are endangered. They're, they're, they're dying out. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's so, <laughs> there's so much more than that. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I just feel like once you, you open that book up, there's just, there's so much to them that, um, it's just, there's, there's, there's never a shortage of, of new things to learn and new things to appreciate. Like you said, with, with dart frogs, just their, their color, their variety, the, the, the differences in, in the, the toxins that they express, all these different things. There's just, right. there's, you get, I don't know, I'm getting excited, but I don't know. <laughs> it's just, well, uh, in you know, like I said, I know I sound like, you know, a broken record here, but just the education about it, you know, we learned in school about, you know, people getting them to care about protecting species and their habitat and whatnot. You know, you have the stereotypical charismatic megafaunal species, elephants, big cats, polar bears, things like that, that really grip people. And you know, unfortunately, with the amphibians, you don't get a whole lot of that. You know, a lot of people, like how many people even know what the heck a Sicilian is? So <laughs> um, it's definitely a little bit more challenging and more hurdles to cross to get people to really care and want to learn about them. But uh, during my time with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, you know, I worked with some critically endangered species in the Houston area one being the Atwater's prairie chicken, one of the most critically endangered birds in the world that most people have never heard of. And then the Houston toad, you know, also another endangered species of amphibian here. And it's shocking to me, you know, how many people from the Houston area have never even heard of these animals. 
<laughs> My favorite story was, I think it might have been somewhere in South Carolina, there was a, a photograph of a large, darkly colored snake in a tree in some, I guess, suburban or urban park. And somehow someone got the idea that it was a black mamba. And <laughs> in reality, it was just it was just a large rat snake. And yep. people couldn't accept the fact that it existed in a somewhat urban environment. And they jumped to yep. this crazy, like, wild conclusion. But well, um, somebody released a black mamba here. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's I think people have lost touch with the natural world. I mean, I, I shouldn't say everybody, but at least, you know, in, in urban areas and certain suburban right. areas, at least, where, at least where I live, you know, ev no. every spider is a brown, every spider is a brown recluse. Every yep. snake is a black mamba. <laughs> and it, it, it's it's getting to be a little bit ridiculous with the, the spectacle aspect of it. But um, yes, most definitely. Now you have your own company. So why, why did you, what prompted you to start Urban Amphibia and, um, you know, what are you up to in terms of, of your business? So it was something that has kind of been a side hustle for several years. Um, like I said, I was the broke college student trying to make ends meet. I worked in vet clinics. I, um, you know, worked as a keeper. I've worked in different pet stores, things like that. And, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I was getting burned out. Um, you know, I, I guess everybody probably thinks this of themselves, but I like to think that I have a pretty strong moral fiber <laughs> and I'm definitely hard headed. And I was just getting tired of working for other people in the animal industry that just didn't share the same morals that I do. And you know, I was in a um, an Instagram live with Troy Goldberg not too long ago, and there was a guy that brought up something that really resonated with me. And he was like, man, you know, do y'all really think that that capitalism and in animal industry can mix? And I think that's a really fair point. You know, whenever you start a business, obviously you have to have, you know, different aspects of a business running through your mind, like the overhead and, you know, making money and all that stuff. Otherwise your business isn't going to be a business very long, but I always tell people it's really different when you're working with living, breathing creatures and that's your business. Um, you know, I like to think the same rules can't necessarily apply all the time. Um, you know, talking about like cutting costs or anything, you know, there's certain things you can do, but with animals, you know, at the end of the day, they're always going to have to eat. They're always going to have to receive adequate care and husbandry and that all costs money. Um, so it was things like that, that I was seeing and experiencing, and it was really just kind of breaking my heart. And that's not to say every single business I've worked for has been like that, because I've worked for some phenomenal places that have really inspired me to operate the way that I do. Um, but I really wanted to to just be different. And I know it sounds cliche and I'm sure everybody thinks, you know, about this, too. But my business is first and foremost about the animals. I mean, whether it's the education of them, the captive breeding, trying to give back to the animals, um, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate in that my husband has a good job. And so 
This isn't something we just woke up one day and said, hey, you know what? This sounds like a good idea. Let's do this. Um, It was definitely a labor of love over the course of several years. And kind of the ultimate thing that, you know, lit the fire under my butt is, um, you know, me and Steve Satello, the marketing manager for Exoterra for the United States, um, he had actually offered me like a little partnership deal uh, to do a review and build of their new uh, frogs and company tanks. And at that point, I was like, you know what, this like I can do this. Um, You know, somebody is reaching out to me and obviously they they cared about what I have to say and and what I do. And that was really a huge inspiration for me to to just go through with this full speed ahead. Um, You know, that's that's something that I've always been incredibly passionate about. And like you said, a lot of people. Um, just kind of fall into this. And for me, it's just been a lifetime commitment. Like I said, I've been working with animals since I was in high school, and I don't really know anything else at this point. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a specialized career once you get to that point, I guess. Uh, I I mean, I I have my job title isn't particularly specific now, but the stuff I do is... uh, kind of takes a little bit of, of experience in a very, very specific type of situation. So it, it, it doesn't necessarily translate well into another situation. So I, I couldn't necessarily segue out of what I'm doing now into uh, something else. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally understand what you mean about uh, having a business that's based on the, the transfer of, of living things and it must be, I guess, kind of a pressure to have a uh, a public face for it. I mean, like, does, does does going to expos and things like that does that help you out in developing relationships with with new customers? Because I feel like nowadays everyone buys everything online. You sort of lose that personal touch. You like when I go definitely, to, yeah. Like when I go to a show and I meet a vendor that I get along with, I can kind of feel the person out, and we develop a rapport. I can kind of tell who's kind of shady and who's not. I mean, how does that how does that pan out for you? Like when you go to expos and you have face to face interactions with people? Sure. I will be the first to tell you, I am absolutely in my element at the trade shows down here. Um, (laughs) You know, I've been doing the trade shows in Texas for a long time and I've slowly been branching out to the surrounding states now that I'm doing this full time. Um, You know, down here in Texas, it it is a big industry. um, But like you and I have talked about before, You know, another big reason that I was motivated to do this is the lack of representation for us amphibian keepers. Um, You know, I will be the first to admit I don't have experience going to the shows up north at this point, which, you know, hopefully will change soon. Um, But down here, you know, we jokingly call them like the ball python festivals. Um, you know, you walk into any expo, it doesn't matter who's putting it on and half the vendors are going to have nothing but ball pythons. And, you know, I thought it would be a little bit different whenever we moved to the Houston area back in uh, 2014. I was like, Hey, you know, it's a big area, you know, going to be a little bit more diverse. And there were maybe like one If it was a good show, maybe two people that would have amphibians. And a lot of times they were, you know, 
wildcat imports or things that, you know, they definitely didn't produce. Um, and so that kind of, you know, kicked me in the butt to get into overdrive and really start focusing on my own breeding projects and being able to, to fill that gap in these trade shows. And honestly, it's been so rewarding for me um, branching out and doing this on my own. Um, here in Texas, we have uh, the Herps uh, trade show network put on by uh, Sean Gray and, and Lori, and they're phenomenal. Um, they put on some of the best shows I've ever had the pleasure of vending. And the great thing for me, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of friends across the country and stuff. And, you know, we have Repticon here, too. And I'm not going to talk trash or anything, but it, it's not my favorite show circuit to do. Um, but at Herps, you know, they're pretty strict and they actually vet people that go in there. And I mean, if you're selling sickly or wild caught animals, they'll give you the boot. I mean, you'll get banned from the show. And so I have a lot of respect for that. And as such, I think we get some really great clientele that come to those shows because they have high standards and high expectations. And people kind of laugh because when you get me talking about, you know, dart frogs or amphibians or anything, I can, you know, be a chatterbox and go on forever. And a lot of times at these shows, this is people's first time ever seeing dart frogs or you know, reed frogs or lemur leaf frogs, whatever the heck I have at the time. And they're just completely enamored with them. And I see that same spark in them that, you know, we've all experienced ourselves that got us started in this too. And I pride myself on my customer service because I love interacting with the customers. Um, <laughs> probably a little bit too much sometimes, but uh, every single person, I kid you not, that has bought dart frogs from me or pre-built enclosure from me since I started doing this full time has personally reached out to me thanking me after the fact, whether it's on Instagram or my business email or YouTube or whatever. And that's really what motivates me to keep doing this. I mean, I absolutely love the customers. And I love that face-to-face, -face, very personal, more intimate interaction that I get with people at the shows. Um, you know, you were talking about online, and I've had so much requests or questions about when are you going to start selling online? When are you going to start shipping frogs? And I know I'm going to have to at some point um, for scalability purposes. I get it. But at this point, you know, I much prefer the in-person and I've been doing really well with it. And the thing that I get out of the shows or at least spending in person that you're not going to get online is the ability to vet people that are purchasing your animals. Um, you know, I don't want to sound like a jerk or anything, but I have refused sales before at the shows. Um, kind of funny story that's also irritating that I'm sure a lot of us have experienced as vending a show back in July. And there was this woman that came up and asked me if I had any rainbow frogs. And I was like, no. And I pretty much already knew where it was going. And she wanted to buy pretty much one of every type of dart frog that I had on the table and put them all in together. And I yeah, I was like, no, that's no, 
Like, just let me stop you there. And uh, the friend, or I was bending with a friend that was uh, at the table right next to me. And I'm a very patient person. I try and be very nice and approachable. Um, give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, everybody starts somewhere. Everybody's got to learn. And so I kind of started in on, you know, why we don't do that. And she just started arguing with me about it. And she's like, well, I read on the internet, you can do it. And that's how you make rainbow frogs. And I was like, yeah, because everything you read on the internet is true, huh? And um, so, I mean, I have, I've refused sales to people before. Cause like I said, at the end of the day, the, the animals are first to me. I mean, I don't need the money that bad to sacrifice, you know, my moral beliefs and keeping these guys. And if somebody is making me feel uncomfortable or I just think that, you know, my animals are going to be sent to their death, I'm not okay with that. And I know people will say like, oh, it's impossible to vet everybody. You know, people lie, blah, 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 which, yeah, that's true. You know, you're never going to be able to thoroughly vet everybody. But, you know, if you have somebody that's being belligerent and just not listening and blatantly telling you they're going to mix your dart frogs together and all that kind of nonsense, I mean, no, you're not going to get my dart frogs. I put too much time and love and effort into raising them to just send them to their death, you know? I get real protective of my stuff, too. And it just I mean, I don't I don't sell anything that I have anyway, because it's not like I'm producing a tremendous amount. But I, I remember one story, which is kind of like what you just said. Although it's it's not a dark frog story, but it's equally absurd. When I worked at a local chain store in the early to mid 90s, we had green iguanas were like the default reptile. You had green iguanas oh, yeah. <laughs> and you had uh, you had boas. And that was basically that was the large reptiles. And this woman came in and she wanted to buy an iguana, and I said, okay, well, you're going to need to buy a, a fair amount of equipment to go with it. And and bear in mind, in like 1996, that equipment was basically like a 20-gallon long with a vital yep. light, which was <laughs> horrific. But it was it was still an investment. And she got angry, and she started arguing with me, and she said, what do you mean? I don't need all this stuff. I said, yeah, it's it's a, you know, it's a warm-weather animal. It, it needs some sort of UV, UV radiation, and it's got... She goes, what do you mean? She goes, I saw someone on the Donahue show just holding it. <laughs> and I mean, just so everyone out there knows, the, the Donahue show was a like a talk show in, in the 80s and 90s. And it was like, you know, it was like kind of like Dr. Phil today. But I hope I don't get sued for saying that. But, you know, they'd have people come like people come on from old crazy walks of life. And I guess it was a reptile show. And this woman thought you could just like, you know, hold it. I mean, I could buy that if you lived in, you know, one place like Southern California, Florida, well, Florida's off. Well, out of bounds now, but yep. then I could then I could buy it. But I mean, up here in New York, it gets cold. That's not going to happen. But that that was a situation where yeah, we we refused the sale because um, we knew it was going to be uh, it was going to be bad for the animal. Right. <laughs> Definitely bad. So yeah, absolutely. Which which species are you working with nowadays? And I, I know you work with other other frog species besides dart frogs. But do you want to just give us a rundown of of everything that you're working with now? <laughs> Um, let me think off the top of my head. Um, you know, a couple different tank species. I have uh, some green soap still, um, Katari rivers, uh, Lawnus, um, Phyllobates, the orange blackfoots. 
I'm waiting on my mints from Troy. So uh, hurry up, Troy. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Um, <laughs> um, some Costa Rican green and black erratus, um, super blues, um, you know, standard leucamellas, um, uh, Vanzellinis, uh, Uakari gold legs, um, Benedictas, uh, the Shuku Shiakus. I'm trying to run through my racks of darts. Um, <laughs> um, my babies, my uh, Ufaga Pamilio strawberry blue jeans. Funny story, I never intended on being a dart frog breeder. And uh, the very first species I ever successfully bred were the blue jeans. And uh, I had a lot of people hate me for that. <laughs> But uh, I love those guys. Um, you know, I have a colony of red-eyed tree frogs. I have a colony of dumpy tree frogs. Uh, have several Pac-Mans, um, Vietnamese mossies, uh, different reed frogs, you know, blueback, starry nights, um, lemur leaf frogs, um, golden mantellas, green mantellas, and some salamanders. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's fun to keep other species besides dar frogs. I mean, I know a lot of the people that I speak to just primarily keep dar frogs, or some people even just keep like obligates or thumbnails. Some people don't even yeah. keep anything else, which is which is totally cool. Yeah, I don't know. I just I like having other species around though, just because it kind of breaks up the monotony and. Yeah, I, I don't and know. See, that's that's my thing. Um, you know, I'm definitely working more on um, my breeding groups of dart frogs. Um, I have a, oh, Amazonica reds. I have some Southern variabilis. You know, people have a frog room. I literally have a, a frog house. They're just kind of all over the place. <laughs> I have several, several wrecks of them among my many other animals. Um, but like you said, I mean, I love the darts. Uh, but like other frogs, you know, I think they're really underrated. I know the mossies are gaining in popularity a lot, but I've had mossies for several years now. Um, the lemur leaf frogs, um, I'm working on a breeding project with those guys. I definitely have a soft spot for the lemurs. Um, you know, red eyes as a staple. You can't really go wrong with red eyes. And for me personally, I'm really enjoying working with the Mantellas. Um, I have some breeding projects going on with those guys as well. And I get people all the time, like dart frog people asking me, oh, why the heck would you waste your time with Mantellas? And I'm telling you, I really enjoy them. Um, I think they're a lot of fun. They're, they have a lot of similarities to the darts while still being very different and unique to me. Um, and I've had a lot of people be like, oh, you know, I had them and they were so shy. I never saw them. My group of Goldens, those guys are out all the time. I mean, they're, they don't have a care in the world. So I love those guys. I was always amazed by the, just the convergent evolution because they're, they're, I, I took a course in their, a class rather in their taxonomy. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. They're not even remotely close to being related. Like the whole uh, African and Indian subcontinent, you know, yep. frog evolution was just so, I mean, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yep. And the fact that they look 
and you know, it's just so similar to dog frogs. I, I just, I love convergent evolution, but yeah. it's interesting. No, you're they're right. Fascinating, yeah. fascinating little creatures. You're right, though. Not a lot of people, not a lot of dart frog people. Well, I, I've spoken to a few people who do keep both, but it seems kind of like it's like one or the other. Yeah. And I mean, I will say I got into dart frogs first, obviously, but the Mantellas, I've really enjoyed them. And, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to expand my collection of those. And, you know, it's sad. I get a number of people at the shows asking me when I'm going to have them available and stuff. And, uh, they're just, there's not a lot of people working with them. And that's kind of sad to me. Their breeding behavior is a little bit different though, right? They're a little bit more secretive about it. Yep. Um, definitely (laughs) a bit more on the tricky side than most of the darts and, uh, you know, the males, even the way that they, uh, quote unquote, amplex is really bizarre too. um, you know, just kind of chilling on the female's head. <laughs> so they're, they're, uh, they're bizarre little creatures, but like I said, you know, even before I got into them, whenever I was researching them, people were always like, Oh, you won't like them. You're never going to see them. They're super shy, reclusive. And I mean, like I said, my, my greens are a little bit more shy, but those golds, I mean, I have a, a decent group of them. They are out constantly all the time. It's not uncommon for me to see every one of them out at the same time. So I think they're super underrated. The amplexus thing is funny. Like, people don't realize how many different methods of amplexus are out there. I think there's like yep. six or seven or eight <laughs> of them. Like I, 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 I'm taking this class. I'm looking at this diagram. I'm like, my God, I'm like, this is, this is crazy. And like, yeah. you're right. There's some of them, like they, they hold, it depends where they, they hold on a, a, above the shoulder, below the shoulder, over mm-hmm. the head, like under the, you know, it's, it's crazy, but, um, how are you keeping your, your collection? Because you've, you've obviously got a pretty large collection going like what what's mm-hmm. um like what's your preferred method for keeping things do you keep things a little bit more on the spartan side do you go more with like a display type of vivariums i am definitely full on display um i keep everything exhibit style i you know if i get in new species or something uh you know i'm pretty particular about who i'll buy from first and foremost and I quarantine everybody. I may keep them in, you know, little grow out tubs or something for a while. But yeah, everything in my house, um, they're they're all display uh, vivariums. Um, some of them I've built myself tank wise. I do a lot of, you know, the exoterras. And with the partnership, I've been working with the new frogs and company tanks, too. And they're pretty cool. Um, I don't keep any big groups or anything in them since they, they only have the two sizes out right now, but, uh, you know, I'll keep like a pair of Ranatomea in them or something. Um, but yeah, everything is, is display style. And as far as like preferred method, I'll be honest with you. I am constantly playing around with new methods. Um, (laughs) I like to experiment a lot. Um, you know, I'll try new supplies out on the market or new techniques. Um, something that I started doing, which I know like Tanner from Serpo was working on it too, but, uh, working with the, uh, custom backgrounds using the insulation foam board and carving it down rather than doing great stuff. I've really been liking that method. Um, especially down here in Gulf coastal, you know, ridiculously million percent humidity texas uh that's something i think a lot of people don't keep in mind is just the 
the environmental parameters whenever you're working on tank builds, especially when you're doing those custom backgrounds. Um, I noticed a pretty big difference moving from like the drier hill country, Texas area to the Gulf Coast, where the humidity is stupidly high all the time. And it was taking a lot longer for my backgrounds to cure. Um, I would have issues with them pulling away. So I really had to play around with it when I first moved here. Um, so I've really been liking the insulation foam board backgrounds. You know, I've done the cocoa fiber, um, the dry lock methods, uh, something else I've been playing with recently. Uh, you know, I just like I'm sure everybody else does. I know you've said you do. We all have our little recipes for substrates that we like to use. Um, something I saw on a, a um, Texas dart frog forum recently is an old veteran keeper was using a product called Safety Zorb, uh, which we can get at Tractor Supply down here. Uh, it's Montmorillonite clay. That's literally all that it is. Um, and, you know, adding that into your substrate or using it for clay baths for your obligates, things like that. Stuff is seven bucks for a 40 pound bag of it. And he's been using it for years. So I was like, huh, I'm going to give that a try. And, um, I started off just doing it in some like 12, 12, 18s that I had planted that I didn't plan on putting any inhabitants in or anything just to see how it did. And I had really good plant growth, you know, really good drainage in there. And then I started trying it with uh, some of my Ranatomeo species and my Vanzellinis and it's been working great. So um, I'm a pretty big fan of that. The insulation board you're talking about, it's like the purple stuff. It's usually like maybe an inch and a half, two inches thick. That's the one you're talking about? Uh, they have different ones. They have one down here um, at Lowe's. It's like a green one. But yeah, they have all kinds of different foam boards. Um, they have different thicknesses and whatnot. I've I've used that. It's It's funny because I used that before I started using the, the polyurethane foam, and I... I actually got better results. I, I don't really know why people were using the foam other than just, you know, I guess it was easier to, but like I took, I made, I actually made a background for a king snake uh, enclosure out of it. I just, I took the piece, I had a styrofoam cutter and uh -huh. I mean, just, so, just so everybody knows using a styrofoam cutter or, or anything like <laughs> wear, wear some kind of protection. Cause the stuff is like, it's like deadly. But um, what I ended up doing was I, I carved it. And uh, don't anyone ever do this, but I, I heated it up with a torch and it gave it this like really like rippled like texture. And then I used, yep. just used, uh, I used dry lock with acrylic paint yep. and just painted it front and back. I was able to do one that kind of, um, I, I glued some like layers on top of each other and I was able to kind of carve it to look like, uh, like mangrove shoots. And I was, mm -hmm. I was, I was really, really happy with it. And I'm like, everyone's using this polyurethane foam method. I was like, all right, let me try that. And I did it with a bunch of builds. And now I'm like, I don't really want to, I don't really want to do it anymore. I kind of want to just go back to yep. using the panels. It was so <laughs> much easier. The same way. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I've, I've done a couple of, uh, pre-built tanks that I've brought to shows and sold and people are like, oh my God, what is that? I've never seen it. And I don't know, you know, if it's like a regional thing or something, but Everybody was like, oh, this is the best thing since sliced bread. And I'm with you, man. I got burned out on doing the the great stuff foam. And 
there's just so many things that can go wrong with it. And I found that doing the insulation foam board was faster and I was getting better results with it. So that's kind of what I've been sticking with, with most of my builds now. It's easy to pull out too, if you decide you want to like trash the tank or something. Yes. And it's yep, basically the definitely. same stuff as what the Exoterra backgrounds are made out of anyway. Only it's, it's the, it's a little bit more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The Exoterra type backgrounds are a little bit more like, uh, like the foam you'd get a cooler. Yeah, you know, like one of those yeah. white coolers. The, this stuff is a lot more dense. Yep. Which which honestly um, makes it easier to cut. If, to me, I think it's easier to cut than and than the uh, polyurethane foam as well. I do too. And uh, something that I do because I mean I have small hands. I do uh, I carve it out with a Dremel as well. Uh, I'll put on like a really coarse sanding bit and do a flexible shaft attachment. And I mean I've can carve those things out pretty darn fast and you can get really detailed with it. So I, that's just the way I've been doing it and I really enjoy it and I like the results from it. Yeah. You just have to be careful that you paint the back of it or the sides before you put it on. Otherwise you get that purple showing through. Yeah. See, I use um, contact paper with it. I get this wood contact paper on Amazon that I'll put on the outside of the tank. It comes in uh, like white, black, and brown, and it's got this really nice wood grain on it. So I just throw that on the, the sides. What I started doing was, and I've, I've done this with a lot of, even even before I started doing Darfrog builds, I did this with, with snakes a long time ago. I'll take a, a can of black matte spray paint and spray paint the back, you know, the, the two sides in the back of a tank. Mm-hmm. Yep. And at least then you don't get you don't get any uh like any weird spots like it doesn't you don't see mistakes show up right so i've seen people kind of do builds and you could see where some of the foam got on the side or there's some errant marks or or whatever like if you do that with the black you don't you don't see it at all at least that's just i mean for me that's like cleaner yeah it's an easy way to kind of cheat without actually you know going going too crazy but yeah, yeah, definitely gives it a sharper look, more professional. Yeah, tell tell us about your 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 plants. You're you're also a pretty <laughs> bit. You you're, you've got like a pretty good plant game going. So, you want to tell us about some of your favorite species and what you like about them? Sure. Um, I actually do have a a little uh, makeshift greenhouse out in my backyard, and I do a lot of plant propagation as well. Um, I will be super cliche and admit I love bromeliads. Um, I've loved bromeliads even since before I was really keeping dart frogs, though. Um, you know, I've traveled through Central America and stuff, and I was just always in love with them. And I think they're fascinating, too. You know, their evolutionary history. That's the the nerd in me. Um, but I am very fortunate down here. Um, Because, you know, living in the South, it's good bromeliad growing country. And we have a Jimbo's plant nursery down here in little Santa Fe, Texas. He is a world-renowned bromeliad grower. And, like, if you go on my Instagram, I have a couple videos walking through there. Y'all, I have never seen more bromeliads in my life than at that nursery. So if you're ever in the Houston area and you love bromeliads, definitely go check out Jimbo's. Um, he, he's an older guy. He's been in the game for decades. Um, you know, he's been like the president of the national bromeliad society. 
And he loves educating people as well. Um, I remember the first time I went out there, he was like, you're awfully young to be out here. It's usually older people that love these bromeliads. And uh, he spent about two hours teaching me and showing me how to hybridize bromeliads. And y'all, that was just like one of the coolest things to me. Um, But he works with, you know, pretty much every genera of Brahms. He does a lot of regias, uh, ecnias, bilbergias, um, of course, neo-regelias. And so as a result, I have a huge collection I have amassed from him and I do a lot of bromeliad propagation. Um, You know, most of what you see people use are the neo-regelias, but I've kind of been moving more towards some of the freesias as well. Um, You know, I bring them to shows and people are like, what in the world is this? I've never seen this plant before. Um, but aside from Brahms, probably my next favorite plants to work with are the different jewel alocasias. Um, you know, I have a bunch of Maharanis, uh, Infernalis, um, Black Magics, the the Red Secrets. Like I just, I really, really love the jewel alocasias as far as aeroids go. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the aroid thing because it, at least in the Darfrog area or the Darfrog arena, I guess, aroids are starting to become really, really popular. I mean, I even, I mean, I, I never purported to be like a heavy hitter with plants. I, I, I still have pothos in my enclosures, you know what? And I'm, I'm damn proud of it. And you know it. what? <laughs> I, I keep it in my froglet grow out too. And I get hate for that and I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I I got uh I got um what is it uh the common name is the Swiss cheese plant I it's was it Monstera, yeah I think yeah I got one of those and I'm really really happy with it it's just got this like I'm I'm actually kind of shying away from bromeliads and trying to just get more greenery and try to stay yeah. with that green palette yeah so I've been pulling out my pothos and replacing it with with other you know more uh, oh, I should say less, less pathetic plants but. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know what? There is nothing wrong with pothos. And I always tell people that because, like I said, I know a lot of the hardcore dart frog people shy away from Brahms too. And they're like, oh, they're overused. People use them too much. For me, like, I just love the propagation of them and just, you know, the science behind them. And now that I know more about hybridizing them, I just find them fascinating in that regard as well. Um, but yeah, definitely some of the aeroids, like I'll see people drop, you know, several hundred dollars on, on different aeroids. And I'm like, yeah, I love plants, but you know, I don't have that kind of money to drop. <laughs> I did, uh, I did enter a, not a, not a plant, a full planted tank. There's a, there's a local fair that's kind of run out here on Long Island. And I entered the terrarium contest, you know, container 10 inches and under, and I started thinking to myself, all right, I, I really want to win this. And I did. I did actually win. But I'm like, I gotta, I want to plant this, and I want to include a lot of just the more advanced species. And then I'm like, wait a minute. People aren't going to know what the hell this is. And if I put this <laughs> if I put this Monstera in there with all these holes in the leaves, people are going to think there's something wrong with it. So, like, what did I do? Put a I, disease plant in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what did I do? I took a piece of cork I took a piece of cork bark and I just kind of wedged a neo in there 
I, I actually stuck it underneath a plant light for like a month in advance because I was hoping that it would color up. I was hoping color it would just, up. Yeah, <laughs> it, it didn't color up too great though. And I think I stuck some like ficus pamelia in there and um, uh, something else. I put two other plants in there and it was nothing like that crazy. And I, I and I won because I was like, you know what? <laughs> I, if I go like if, if I, I was I was like, I'll put leaf litter in there and, you know, I'll put a couple of springtails in there and, and just to kind of. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I can't I can't have little bugs crawling around this thing. <laughs> so I totally sold out and. But it, it, it went over well. But um, I mean, having a large collection that that you do, what's a typical day like for you in your frog house? Obviously, like, what, what's what's your normal routine like from when you get up in the morning until you go to bed at the evening? Yeah, so I will say it has definitely been refreshing since I've been doing this full time, um, working a lot more from home now. Now, when I was working a normal, you know, 45, 50 hour a week job and coming home and doing all of this, that was uh, a lot more challenging. Um, you know, I'll be the first to say I was super hesitant about getting into automatic misting systems. I had so many people make fun of me. But part of it for me was just the actual hands on maintenance. I actually enjoyed it. You know, that was my time to spend, you know, really focusing in on every single enclosure. And I really didn't even start hooking up anything to automatic misting systems until about a year ago. And I will admit that has been nice. It has cut back on my time. Um, but some of my tanks, like, you know, my Ufaga and uh, some of my Ranatomeas and stuff, just because of how I have them situated, like more display tanks incorporated in furniture, I do still hand mist those. Um, so kind of first thing in the morning, we'll go through, make sure everybody is misted. Um, you know, obviously not a daily thing, but refill any misting reservoirs as needed. Um, check on everybody, uh, especially in our little, you know, froggy nursery, our little neonate room. Um, you know, do tadpole duty, things like that, water changes. Um, feed our neonates, um, tending to the plants. So like I said, I do have um, our little greenhouse out back. So I'm always working on plant propagation. And then I do have um, some more delicate plants inside as well, like different orchids and stuff that I'm working on. Um, so I do, you know, a lot of plant pruning, repotting, things like that. Um, and then checking for eggs, you know, that's always, <laughs> always the exciting part for me with, you know, several different enclosures going on. And I have some guys that breed like rabbits all the time. So they give me a million eggs. So I always make sure and check, pull them as needed, um, check on the obligates. You know, I have a clutch of blue jeans in there right now that they're raising. So doing it full time has definitely allowed me to to really invest a lot more care in everybody um, and kind of just get back to to really enjoying it and just admiring them and being able to just watch them interact in their little environments and hunt and feed and, you know, carry their young and deposit them, that kind of thing. So it's it's been a really nice refreshing change for me being able to do it full time 
Do you have any preferences when it comes to tadpole rearing? Like, do you do, you do communal? Do you do separate? And what about things like diet and, and supplementation? I personally do separate. Um, you know, I do have a large collection, but I'm not anywhere near like, you know, Alex McKee's level or anything like that, where he's raising a significantly higher amount than I am. Um, I just personally have always had better success raising them individually. Um, so for me, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I've had good success with it. Why am I going to mess with that now? Um, as far as like diets and stuff for tadpole diets, I like a Tankman's Tad Tots. Um, I actually have a wholesale account with him now and, you know, he's been really kind and generous. He's been a great dude helping me out and I've actually used his stuff for years anyways. Um, but I like his tad tots. I do those. Um, and then, you know, I keep them on rack systems as well, raise them up in, you know, 16 ounce deli cups. And I have a, a rack full of different grow outs and stuff that I'll transition the, the froglets onto whenever they're ready to go on land. So I know I do it a little bit different than, than a lot of people, but like I said, it's worked well for me and I'm, I'm not going to tamper with it. <laughs> um, as far as supplements as well, I kind of play around with different supplements. You know, Rapashi Calcium Plus has always been in there um, with the vitamin A. Uh, definitely heavier for my my active breeders. Um, I've done the, uh, oh, what's it called, the uh, Berkman supplements as well. Um, and then the Dendro Care line. So I've kind of alternated. Um, I'm currently using the Dendro Care right now. Um, and then once again, Tankman, he's got his uh, Dart Frog Supplement Bundle, which I actually like that. I've had good success with that as well. Um, good egg production, uh, no issues with, um, you know, infertile eggs, bad eggs or anything like that. Uh, no issues with my tadpole development or froglet development. So um, I've been a pretty big fan of his stuff. Yeah, I think he I think he lives near me, actually. I think he's either in he's in Jersey, I think. Right. Yeah, he's in Jersey. I think he's opening up a pet shop in New York, though, I think is what he told me last time I talked to him. We met a couple of times at, at Expos. He's actually another person I, I really looking to get onto the show Um because we met an expo, there's, there's like two expos here in New York, and uh, he's always had tables at both, and I, I talked to him a couple, well, back when we had expos, which was like two years ago because of COVID, <laughs> but um, yeah, he's got some he's got some pretty cool products out there. Yeah, he's a real nice dude, too. I mean, he's definitely been one that has stepped up and been very gracious with me, offering me advice or, you know, you know, definitely telling me to let him know if there's anything he can do to help me. And I've been trying to help represent him down here as well, because I think there's just kind of a regional divide. Um, you know, like I've been in Texas for a while and most of my customer base has been based out of Texas. Um, but I've had more and more people starting to reach out to me from, you know, further up north, y'all's neck of the woods. So I think it's it's been pretty nice and um, trying to get some representation for for some of the good dudes up there down here now too. So yeah, it's almost like habitat fragmentation. You've got you've got yeah. uh, there's this big 
I mean, I've talked to a lot of people like Troy, Mike Novi, uh, Nick Gamble. I mean, a whole, a whole bunch of people who are from Ohio. And Ohio is like the, the I said, I'm like, what is it with you guys and, and yep. like Ohio? <laughs> and now like up here in the Northeast, um, you know, there's, there's like Julio Rodriguez is up here. Um, you know, Lynn from Ferns Frogs is up. There's, yep. a, there's a bunch of people up here. And, yep. you know, obviously me, but who, who the hell am I? And, um, <laughs> you know, you're right. There's this kind of small presence in Texas. And then you've got a couple of like you've got Jay Summers out in California um he's really more of a salamander person but he works with a lot of frogs too yeah and it's just it's funny because it's like you literally i mean it's gonna be a bad, be a bad pun but you kind of leapfrog from location to location and there just seems to be this big void b- exactly. between them but um yep, for yeah for sure it's it's another one of those weird quirks like i guess it's just an example of how the community is a little bit smaller than some of the other larger herb communities yeah most definitely I'm just curious what your thoughts are about having a small business in the hobby as opposed to a, having a like a big business. Meaning, you and I talked a little bit before about having a more intimate relationship with potential customers at an expo because you get you get FaceTime with that person, and in my opinion, that that counts a lot because whoever the face of the business is is obviously the the person that you're going to be dealing with, and. I know when I deal with a vendor, there's a certain type of person that I gravitate towards. I mean, how do you feel like the the dynamic is with small businesses as opposed to big businesses in the in the herb hobby in, in just in general? Honestly, you know, uh, may seem a little egotistical saying this now as a small business, but I really think small businesses are what make this hobby possible. Um, you know, you and I kind of talked about and even earlier, you know, when you start getting big, a little bit too big for your britches, you lose that intimacy with the customers. And like I had kind of touched on earlier, I know it sounds outlandish to, you know, or people are going to say, oh, she's just young and dumb, whatever, doesn't know anything yet. Um, but people, you know, always saying you have to put the business first, you have to put the business first and all that. And you know, in my experience, because like I said, me doing this full time is relatively new, but I've been doing it on the side for several years. So I'm not brand new to the game. And at the end of the day, a lot of times as people with the small businesses, we're the ones that are helping to advance the hobby. You know, we're the ones that are doing it for the animals, the sake of the animals. Um, Whereas, you know, you go to the big box pet stores, we've kind of talked about that. I think we can all agree they're not really doing it for the sake of the animals. Um, You know, when you don't even carry the appropriate products to properly care for the animals that you're selling. And so the other big thing too um, that I've noticed is, you know, the bigger people get, especially in the animal industry, and it doesn't even matter if it's, you know, amphibian, reptile, fish, small mammal, whatever, people just start trying to monopolize everything and you know, it may work for a short time, but it's ultimately going to backfire on you because when you start trying to monopolize the industry, I mean, you're going to start getting a reputation and nobody else is going to want to work with you. And, uh, you know, I've had a conversation with the the guys over at a leaf habitats, Jack and Tim, they've been super nice as well, reaching out to me. And, um, you know, they've been asking input from other small business owners because they're coming from, you know, Innovative Marine, a huge 
very prominent name in the the aquatic game. Um, you know, I used their products whenever I was doing reef tanks and whatnot. And they said it best, you know, if everybody wants to succeed, you know, you got to work together. And that really couldn't be more true to me or more important. And kind of going back to what I was just touching on, you know, some of the nicest people that have been super helpful to me are, you know, what should be considered my competition. You know, people that look at me and like, oh, why are you working with them? Why are you helping them? Why are they helping you? Y'all are direct competition of each other. But none of us see it that way. You know, like Alex Mankey over at Frog Daddy, he has been nothing but kind to me. And, you know, whenever he saw that I opened my business, he was literally the first person to reach out to me and congratulate me and, you know, ask me to let him know if there's anything that he can do to help me. Um, so, you know, I don't think I, I know I've told him how much I appreciate that, but I don't think he quite understands how much that meant to me. Because he is somebody that I've definitely respected in the game for a long time. He's got a great reputation. He's just been a a real salt of the earth kind of guy. And for him to literally be the first person to reach out and congratulate me, that meant the world to me. And that's the difference between, you know, us small businesses working together, trying to help each other. Because like you just said, kind of the habitat fragmentation. You know, he's in North Carolina, uh, Tankman's up in New Jersey, I'm down here in Texas. Like, we all have an incredibly different demographic that we can hit. And down here at these trade shows, you know, people like you and I, yeah, we know Troy, we know, uh, you know, Alex. But I've had so many people down here that are customers, and they're looking for a specific species that I don't personally work with. And I'll tell them, you know, hit up Alex. And they're like, who? And I said, Frog Daddy. Like, oh, what's that? And so it's just kind of the different regional demographics that each of us can target. And, you know, they've been super nice and kind to me. So I've been trying to, you know, show some love their way too down here. Like I started selling Tinkman's lights at the trade shows down here and people are loving them. They've never even heard of them before. (laughs) And so I think if, you know, more of us work together as small businesses to really try and boost each other, A, it's going to be better for all of our businesses in the long run anyways. But B, I feel like most of us that already are working together are the ones that are really trying to help advance the hobby. Because at the end of the day, it should always be about the animals. I mean, None of us have this hobby without the animals. We wouldn't have this business without the animals. So that's what should always be priority number one, in my opinion. It's true. I've noticed that a lot of people who end up having successful small businesses, and I mean, obviously we make the, need to make the distinction, having a, you know, having a small side business is, is still a small business. Right, and right. even though you're not necessarily pushing out frogs, enough to to subsist over it's it's still a small business but even on the larger end i've noticed that the consistent theme at least the people that i've spoken to has been that they they start off with a a passion for the hobby and then the the business model kind of comes second and it just sort of develops over time just based on experience and dealing with people and customer service and whatnot i never really met anybody or spoke to anybody who said I'm going to, I've come up with this business model for success and 
the fact that it's animals is just completely immaterial. You know what I mean? It's like, I I don't think that this is something that you could, and obviously this is arguable and this is my opinion, but I don't know that this is the type of business that you could teach someone in business school and have it succeed without, yeah, without that element to it. Yep. But, you know, I, I do, that is kind of one of my fears with, um, some people that, you know, I've known personally and, you know, I've even seen in the trade show market and whatnot is people that do initially start off with all the right intentions and doing things well. And then I don't know if it's just a matter of burning out, like they, that passion fizzles. And so the business just kind of starts to suffer. Um, or, you know, money is ultimately the the factor. I don't know. But, um, I think, you know, kind of going back, like I know Alex has that big education too, you know, he is a professor. So I think it speaks a lot to people if you're willing to literally, you know, go so far as to dedicate your whole life's work to this, you know, like it's, it's not just a little, little side hobby you do on the weekends or anything, especially if you're willing to go out and, and spend the time and money to really educate yourself and, you know, get the best of the best and try and create the best of the best for the hobby. Yeah. You have to go full force into it. And just, I mean, even anything like people dabble in things and there's nothing wrong with that. We all, we all dabble in stuff. There's things that we'll kind of do from time to time. But I feel like if you're going to really involve yourself into something, you sort of don't have a choice. You have to go into it full force and commit to the the fact that it it is going to become work at some point. And I mean, not, you know, the podcast is like nothing, but, you know, a substantial amount of work goes into this. And there are times where I'm like, you know what, like, I don't have time for this. I don't, but I think to myself, like, look, you know what, I've I've put all this effort in so far that I kind of, you know, I have to keep going. And if I don't feel like, I mean, there's certain times things happen. I might not put out an episode, you know, for a week if something personal happens or it's a holiday, whatever. But yeah, yeah, I, I know that if I look back and say to myself like well i, I kind of slacked off then to me it just seems like i i kind of like let myself down you start feeling guilty yeah <laughs> yeah and then i think to myself you know this is what you wanted a year and a half ago you you wanted to be at this point and you're here so why would you want to go back i don't know i mean everybody's different everybody has different yeah, motivations no, for things i definitely and, feel that yeah, yeah. i mean you know, there may come a point where I just, I, for whatever reason, I, I can't continue. Who knows? But I feel like for the, in the meantime, you really don't have a choice. And and even like, you know, you, we'd mentioned Alex Menke before. I mean, Alex like breaks his behind. He does, he, he's yeah. at that job 24 seven. And you oh, know, yeah. he said, look, if something happens at the location, if something happens at the store, whatever, he's, he's the one who goes there. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's like, it's like your home, but I guess if that life is, it suits you, then, then that's, that's, that's a good thing for you, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, I mean, I know we keep stressing it, but if you're going to do it, you got to go all in for it. And I mean, that's me too. You know, I had people ask me for years how I would go and do this at a full-time job and come home and literally do the same thing. You know, sometimes we'd be up until midnight taking care of everybody, especially if we, you know, had a lot of froglets coming out of water or something. And it's just, 
when you really love something, I mean, you do all the work that's necessary to do it right and do it well. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, um, if you, if you enjoy the work more than the end product, then I guess you're, you're doing the right thing. I think it was like, um, it might have been Aristotle who said something like that, like that. It's it's not the art, it's not the piece of art that you make that has the value. It's the the work and the creativity and everything like that that goes into it. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I want to. We're kind of winding down towards the end, but I, I wanted to ask you two questions. One's not so serious, and one's a little bit more serious. But uh, just for the the first one, if you could keep any species in the world, and this is obviously just pure fantasy no you know if, if if there was one like bucket list species that you could just keep for whatever reason is there any particular species that it would be well i do have to say i am a huge lover of caudates um i would love the opportunity to be able to work with them more um unfortunately that is definitely well those are definitely animals not a whole lot of people work with um like I said, I have a few salamanders, and uh, if I could have any, it is completely unrealistic, will never happen, but, you know, the giant Chinese river salamander, that would just be the most amazing thing in the world <laughs> to me. Um, at the very least, I would love the opportunity to go meet one one day, but I have always loved those guys. I mean, that is just such an incredible animal to me. I find them incredibly fascinating. And like, if I could meet one tomorrow, I could just like die a happy person. I, I've joked about it with friends. Like I would probably pass out if I could meet one because I just love them that much. <laughs> but yeah, that, that would be my highly unrealistic bucket list animal. Um, something perhaps a little bit more realistic would be some fire salamanders. Um, those guys have been incredibly hard to come by, at least for me. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen one available and they have definitely gone up in price, but, uh, definitely salamanders. I, I have a burning love for the Sally's. You're not alone. I haven't seen fire salamanders in a long time and going back like 20 years, they were just like almost like a disposable species. They were everywhere. Yes. I had, I, I and I know. loved them too. So it's a little depressing for me, but, uh, you know, I joke, of course I love my darts and everything, all my amphibians, but if I could only have one animal in my personal collection, it would be my tiger salamander. I adore him. He is my absolute favorite. He was a uh, captive bred by an old friend of mine that has since got out of it. And I kind of hate him for that. Um, <laughs> but he, he's my boy. I've had him for uh, probably eight or nine years now. I adore him. Those are great. Those are good choices. I think I'm going to, if I could pick one, I'm going to pick an extinct species. Uh, if you, do you have, you have any idea which one I'm talking about? It comes from Madagascar. Uh, no, 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 no. Okay, no. I thought you were going with Tick the Lick. No, that's that's pretty cool though. But um, it would be uh, Beelzebuffo, the uh, oh, the Devil okay, Toad. Yeah. So yep. just for anyone out there who's listening, there was this massive species of frog. I think it might have been the largest, uh, the largest anurin, I guess, of of all time. 
I believe it was. Yeah, and the scientific name is of all things is, is Beelzebufo, which I guess is you know means devil toad. <laughs> but just for some perspective, it's theorized that it resembled a massive horn frog, like a Ceratophorus, yep. like a like a Pac-Man <laughs> frog. But it was I guess it would be about the size of like um like bigger than a basketball, right? So it was it was yep. I mean it wasn't like cartoonishly huge, but it was still really big. And I just I often wonder what extinct species look like. And that's that's one of them, but um, that's definitely a good choice. That's God. That's one I don't think I've heard since like Natural History of the Vertebrates in college. <laughs> so that's a pretty cool one to hear. Yeah, I saw an artist illustration of it. I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> so very cool. Yeah, but so I just want to end on this and and what your thoughts are about this. But um, what do you think the state of the hobby is today? And is there a direction that you think? it should go in for the future? Uh, I will definitely say from my experience, it is growing pretty exponentially. Um, Once again, I don't know if it's a regional thing, but down here, you know, I'm constantly getting asked about it. And that's another reason I haven't even had the opportunity to think about selling online is I'll sell out at the trade shows. I mean, I constantly have people come in and asking me what I have available, when I'm going to have stuff available next, that kind of thing, um, which I love. You know, I love that the hobby is getting more recognition and, you know, really gaining traction. And I'm having a lot of first timers reach out really regularly as well. Um, I got to do a show in the town of my, my college, um, you know, college station, Texas. And I had this guy, he was actually, uh, you know, really into bonsai and really, really loved plants. And I asked him, you know, what brought him to the show? If he had any herps or anything, he said, no, it was actually the plants. You know, I heard you can find some pretty cool plants at these shows. And I happen to have a couple of pre-built tanks, nothing, you know, crazy, crazy or anything, but they were nice grown in. And he was enamored with uh, one of them that I had built. And he was just asking me about all the plants and everything. And he goes, well, do you keep animals in here? And I said, yeah, you know, I actually build them with frogs in mind, you know, dart frogs. And he was looking at them and, you know, really intelligent man, well-bred, that kind of thing. And he probably sat at my booth for like an hour and a half and me and him were talking and, you know, whenever you're talking to people at the shows, we always get the same basic questions, you know, oh, are they poisonous? Will they kill you? Can I handle it? All that stuff. Um, But he was asking a lot more advanced, you know, in-depth husbandry questions and he wound up coming back the next day and he had bought, um, some Missourius and then that tank and he's actually reached out to me several times with updated pictures and stuff and he's like honestly I like this is a brand new hobby for me that I never would have known about if I didn't go there and he's already asking me you know about a next build for him and what species I would recommend next for him and I just you know it really warms my heart you know I love being able to to bring that to first timers that would have otherwise, you know, never even known that this was something they were into. And as far as the direction of where we're going, I definitely want to see us um, 
you know, still be really accessible to newcomers to the hobby. Uh, kind of going back, I was a member of the reef tank community for a very long time. And that can be a hobby that's pretty harsh and unforgiving to newcomers. <laughs> um, you know, you run into a lot of elitists and people that, you know, are kind of snobby and not super willing to help out newcomers and answer basic questions and stuff like that. And I mean, I'd be lying if I said I, you know, love answering the same three questions all the time about dart frogs, but it comes with the territory, you know, that's what we sign up for. And I think it's really important for those of us that are really working to advance the hobby to, you know, bring everybody else on the ride with us. And like I said, don't try and monopolize. You know, I've had so many people reach out to me and ask me for help with breeding or just raising dart frogs, keeping them, bromeliad propagation, just you name it. And, you know, a lot of these people aren't even customers. I've never met them in person. They may not even be in the United States, you know, if they're messaging me on Instagram or whatever. And I think a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, don't waste my time. Um, you know, I'm sure it's kind of like you, you know, trying to reach out and get guests on on the show. You know, everybody's got different mentalities and whatnot. Some of us love talking about it and, you know, can go on and on and other people not so much. Um, so, you know, you definitely run into that with with the business aspect as well. Um, so I think, you know, more of us just just working together, you know, kind of circling back to that. And the big thing for me, you know, from my naturalist standpoint, it's just working more on giving back to the actual animals themselves. Um, you know, I know that's a controversial subject talking about wild caught animals and everything. I don't personally deal with anything that's wild caught. You know, that's not my shtick. Um, but, you know, I do think it's important for us to really be good stewards for the species that we work with and that we love. Um, you know, working to to preserve them and educate the public about them and, you know, help bring recognition to them and do our part that way. You know, I think that's that's really the bottom line for me. Yeah, it's about being a good steward for the hobby, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing I'm super excited about uh <laughs> I was recently asked to uh, teach third and fourth year uh, herpetology wet labs at Texas A&M vet school this coming spring semester. And so they've never had anybody do amphibians. And so they were very gung ho about that. And so I'm going to be bringing a very diverse collection of amphibians and working on teaching, you know, both budding veterinarians and, you know, PhDs, doctors, you know, professors and whatnot at A&M about, you know, evolutionary history, husbandry, medical care, all that good stuff. And I'm going to work with a really good um, exotic veterinarian friend of mine. So that's kind of what I mean, you know, trying to give back, you know, this isn't a paid gig for me. It's something that I'm doing. They reached out to me and I'm 
just like you asking me to be on here, you know, I'm always honored to be asked to do this stuff. And it's a very humbling experience for me. And so I think if more people are willing to do that and not just focus on, you know, what's in it for me, am I going to get paid or get anything out of it? You know, this is, this is what's important to me. And I think this is what's really going to help advance the hobby as well. I agree. All good things. And, uh, no, the, the, the pleasure has been mine. It really has been uh, nice having, I wish we had more time, but we've, we've kind of run out, but, um, yeah, we could definitely do it again sometime. I feel like there's, I, I always have this, I have people on the show and we, we go on and then I'm like, you know what? Like I, I have like more questions now than I, than I did when we started. <laughs> but if, uh, if everyone wants to check you out online, uh, maybe, uh, I guess find your website or whatever, do you want to just give us your, your information so the listeners can uh, find out more? Sure. Um, so I do have a newly started YouTube channel. Um, a lot of it is going to be based on herps, you know, tank builds and whatnot. But I will say um, the channel is Audrey's Urban Exotics. And I'm really focusing on, you know, our standard of care for exotics in general. Um, like I said, I've worked with a vast array of animals and, you know, not just amphibians, but it's important to me that we're keeping all animals correctly. And you run into husbandry issues with all types of exotics. Um, so definitely, if you're interested, check that out. I'm always open to suggestions. If anybody has questions or would like to see a special on anything, definitely hit me up. Um, my website is Urban Amphibia. Like I said, I don't do anything online shipping-wise at the moment. But I do have my trade show schedule on there. Um, so if y'all would like to meet me, I'm always happy to meet people discuss anything uh, animal related. And then I'm most active on Instagram. I have both my personal animal page, which is animal underscore Audrey. And then uh, my business page where you see more of the amphibian related and plant related stuff, which is urban amphibia. So those are my two Instagram handles. But yeah, y'all, I'll say don't ever be afraid to reach out to me. I know I was a little intimidated trying to reach out to people um, in the beginning, asking questions and whatnot, but I'm always happy to help out any way I can, or even if y'all just want to discuss any type of animals, doesn't even matter what it is for me. I'll, I'll talk animals all day long with anybody, um, but yeah, I'm always happy to, happy to chat. Great. Well, listen, everyone, I want to thank Audrey for uh, being a guest on the show. It's been uh, it's been a great one. I, I always enjoy having good conversations like this, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. So uh, till we uh, get together again, I hope you guys are all uh, taking care of each other out there and uh, enjoying life. And I'll catch up with you guys again soon. 